Hello loves, uh, I'm Harry McIntyre from Xenoblade Chronicles 3, uh, The Last Kingdom, Assassin's Creed Valhalla, some other stuff, my Twitch channel, uh, and you are here for the Points of Experience podcast, listening to it, watching it, however you're consuming it. Um, hi, hope you like it. As you just heard, everybody, Harry McIntyre, someone who I've been a deep fan of. Uh, I, the Last Kingdom has been a show that Ali and I have watched uh, within the past year uh, or two years, I guess, religiously. Like we fell in love with it, and his performance as Ethelwald was one that really opened my eyes to how good. Uh, performances can be uh, with someone who was like me in a way. I saw a lot of myself in Harry, and uh, it it was a role that not in the 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 evil natures that he he finds. Spoiler alert! Uh, but someone that I related to as a performer in a role that I could or would play, and uh, to see him do such great work was extremely inspiring for me. Um, and the show is just unbelievably great if you haven't seen it check it out and then to to find that he was the voice of the main character in xenoblade chronicles 3 uh, that game go play it please it is so great the performances are exceptional and it's got a brand new dlc coming out so uh it's a great time to catch up on that check it out uh harry's also worked extensively in tv he was on shows like um uh uh, uh sorry god got, got episodes my gosh with uh, matt leblanc was a great show that i had watched he also was in assassin's creed valhalla he had done um tons of other uh roles extensively worked in theater and things like spring awakening we talk a lot about that we talk about what his method is as a performer dealing with the success um, at an early age working on these prolific titles with actors who really say to you you know you better show up and get ready to work uh it was such a thrilling conversation at every moment i was just constantly invested in every um moment that he was speaking his stories and journey is really inspiring admiring and uh one of vulnerable uh, vulnerable truth that i really appreciated him sharing so stick Around, I was going to say stick tight, but that's not at all what you would do, but you're going to hang tight. Uh, make sure you like, follow, and subscribe. You do all those great things. Leave a review on whatever platform you are watching this on. And we've got Harry McIntyre coming up on the Points of Experience podcast. Harry, thank you so much for coming on the show. This is an absolute, absolute pleasure. You're going to find out shortly as I probably talk a lot about these things, but... Um, I'm a huge fan, and every, uh, I mean, obviously Xenoblade was a tremendous, tremendous title that blew me away, and we'll get to that later, but there's other things along the way that I had known you were in, and I'm a huge Last Kingdom fan. I found that show through the pandemic, so there's so much that I want to talk about. I'll try and be as efficient as possible and (laughs) respectful of your time, but I'm going to gush over a lot of things, so thank you so much for doing this, and I'm just excited to dive in. Mate, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for asking me to do it. It's always nice to kind of talk about stuff, so very happy to be here. 
Of, of course. And this is, I mean, you've done a lot of voiceover, but I feel like this has been like a, a newfound world for you in a way where you, you know, you come from a, a background of doing this, a lot of television working with, you know, on these very prolific titles, but then you get the opportunities to work on these games where it opens up another stratosphere of working in this industry and connecting with fans and, and actually even using your instrument in a different way. So to see somebody like you and, like, you know, I've seen you talk about this to some degree, but, you know, on camera, you, you kind of work within what you've got. And then, uh, you know, in games, you get to kind of push yourself to a limit that you didn't really know. So to see you as an actor, kind of just knowing all your different works and being like, okay, that person's got that quadrant available. That person's got that quadrant available. It's really impressive. And um, I'm just, I'm, I really respect when people are hard workers and good at this craft and they take it very seriously. And I take you to be someone like that. Well, thank you, man. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I do. I've been doing it for kind of a reasonably long time and I'm aware that we got no retirement age so there are people who've been in the industry for like 70 years but I've been in it since I was 17 and I'm, I'm 33 this year so I've been doing it for for almost half my life at this point and I think uh, you know my my grounding like my my training if you will though I didn't train in any formal way was in um was in theatre and in theatre there particularly at the time at which I was coming through which was kind of 2008 2009 uh, I was kind of able to be part of this really exciting kind of movement of new writing in the UK. And actually that gave you incredible flexibility um, in in a sense that quite rightly now, some of the parts that I played, then I kind of wouldn't be considered for, um, you know, because there's a kind of greater understanding of what stories are yours to tell and what stories are maybe left best to people who understand those experiences better. But at the time, you know, you're kind of able to be incredibly flexible with your casting, with the, with the, the, the kind of, um, the energy of the characters that you're playing. And then you move into television and film, although film never really kind of took off for me in the same way that relatively speaking television did. Mm. And you start to work in a more kind of distilled uh, space where, where a lot of the kind of the, a lot of the other stuff has kind of been burned off and you're left with this quite kind of concentrated core of what your casting is. And that is sometimes amazing sometimes immensely frustrating because you you have this kind of either accurate or potentially inaccurate like sense of what you're capable of doing as an actor or an artist however you want to convey yourself and you're increasingly occupying this kind of relatively small space now I was lucky that the small space I got I got put into tended to be sort of Machiavellian quite intelligent sort of darkly funny people and mm. that is a much better space than the person who stands next to the lead person and whispers in his ear or a, a much more satisfying space creatively than the person who punches people in the head or, you know, it's, it's, you know, my, my kind of privileged situation was as a, as a, as a white actor as well, there's much greater flexibility of parts being written for me than there would be, you know, like black actors my age who I know from friends of mine are sick of playing like drug dealers and rappers and that's kind of it. Yeah. But you're still in this kind of relatively narrow pocket. And the amazing thing about working in voice and really that is, if you said to me, you're never on TV again, but you get to have a voice career, I would bite your hand off for it. I love working in voice so much with, with so much more than even I loved working in theater, which was where I started. Um, and, and the incredible thing has been 
with with all the aesthetics taken away, as you said, you talked about use of your instrument and command of your instrument. It's up to you what you play now. Obviously, you still have to go through casting processes, yeah. but I'm sure you've been in the same situation where you get sent these kind of blank castings and they're like, would you like to audition for any of these eight characters? Just put yourself on tape for the ones you think you could do. And you go, yeah. oh, wow. And the age range you're given is like 15 to 60. <laughs> and you go, I'll try four of those. Yeah. And, like, and, and do you get them all? No. Do you get one of them? Very occasionally. But still, the opportunity to be flexible, to broaden your horizons as creative is so, so exciting. And the stuff that comes with it, you know, so, you know, we may end up talking about this, but for me, you know, like it's opened me up to Twitch. It's opened me up to just a sort of a different world. And it's not until you're in it, or certainly not until I was in it and kind of living the reality of being a voice actor as opposed to a screen actor, I realized how much of a better fit it was for my personality mm. as well. That's so fascinating. And everything you said is so true. And, and it kind of the same thing happened for me in, a, in the same way. And I'm curious if this is how it was for you to some extent. I grew up very nerdy playing these video games. For me, this was like my life. I mean, my this was like the room that I would, I would dream of as a kid. Like I have a, a station to play video games and talk with my friends. And it sounds great. And it's really enjoyable. And the stories that I... I most, um, not that I would say that I wasn't interested in books and fantasy to that degree, but the, the idea of playing a video game where you are a part of the story and, you know, it's like, it's like you get to like, oh, these are my friends. Like, these are people I'm jiving with. And it's not just that kind of passive experience. That was my life. And it's, it's rewarding in, in a way that when you work on film or you in the theater, it's just different. There's another element to it that you're you're enjoying. And for you, when you were growing up, were you interested in video games? Did you have that kind of nerdy sensibility? Was that kind of who you were as a kid? Yeah, I think it absolutely was. We, we uh, I didn't have great access to video games as a kid. Um, I had a Mega Drive. I had a secondhand Sega Mega Drive, and I used to play things like road rash which is like this which which i still think might be one of the best games that's ever been made yeah. you know and i had i had like sonic and sonic 2 and all those kind of um platformy games uh but for me gaming there were there were two strands to my kind of gaming uh journey one was like age of empires and strategy games i, mm. I just anything i was a real history buff and and remain someone who really enjoys learning about history and and i think i was in fact i was i was talking with someone about this the other day i think what really what i really love is is storytelling and for me history is storytelling understanding how we got to where we are the mistakes we made i mean i've been watching stuff recently there's this his name escapes me now but it's an amazing youtube channel that does two to three minute explainers on certain historical events and then longer form 10 minutes and they're all these kind of um really kind of dry, uh, like dryly humorous. And they have this kind of very boxy animation style and they're, they're great. But, you know, I'm, I'm kind of learning about, um, you know, the fall of the Holy Roman Empire and I'm learning about um, uh, the, the French um, religious wars that I just had no idea about. And to me, the, the stuff that I'm kind of finding there, even even the names of offices and the names of wars and the names of conflicts and treaties are so fantastical and so rich that to me, they're just great stories. Mm. And so I had a real love of Age of Empires 
I used to play Civilization. There was a game called Pharaoh, which was like an Egyptian. I mean, they're not. Re- I don't know if they're real time strategy games. I don't even know what they're. What they, really yeah, they would RTS be. for sure. Well, Age of Empires. Yeah, yeah. And then there was one called Stronghold, which um, was an amazing kind of British based. Uh, you had to sort of play this campaign, and it took you through the lands of of England, and you had to uh, go on sieges, and you also had to build and you could build what i used to really love doing was i would build scenarios build maps imagine the topography and then you could kind of create the sense that in august of 1064 wolves would arrive <laughs> and you'd have to fight the wolves and, and and all that kind of stuff i found really immersive and really magical because as i say it was stories and then um pokemon red came out and <laughs> The first thing I ever bought for myself as a, I was going to say as a grown up, I think I was 10, but I bought a Game Boy Color and Pokemon Red. And I remember the guy in the shop saying, you know, you're making this so much more expensive for yourself because you're buying a Game Boy Color and it's a black and white game. But I didn't care because I had one of those sort of semi-translucent ones where you could see the wires and I just thought it was the greatest thing ever. Yeah. Um, And then, and then I kind of got into i mean i i never played because i was too socially nervous to go to a games workshop and play but um i had collected warhammer um i collected little kind of little soldiers and used to set those up and imagine battles uh and i mean even now this is this is um this is where i lose a lot of people but even now i play a lot of fifa I've never played FIFA online. I have no interest in playing against someone online. <laughs> what I do is I create myself as a manager or a footballer that I admire as a manager. Uh-huh. And I do all the press conferences out loud. And I imagine being on the training ground. And I'm in my, as I say, nearly my mid-30s. And I talk to my players out loud. Um, and, and that's kind of, so everything's about story. And so oh. now what I'm finding with the JRPG world, although tell me if that's, a, I, I've kind of heard recently that some people don't like that term and find it to be pejorative. Um, certainly not the way in which I'm using it, but but perhaps I'll just say, you know, RPGs like Xenoblade and sure. or, or that kind of ilk. Um, but the, the incredible ability that games have to tell stories in a way that really, unless you're into game of thrones where you have i mean how many even with thrones i can't remember how many seasons they had eight seasons seven or eight, eight seasons, seasons and maybe what 15 eps a season 10 eps yeah. a season so let's say it's you know uh i mean i don't my maths is not good enough to do eight times 15 uh is it it might be 123 is that nonsense that sounds like sounds nonsense. About, no it sounds about right um, yeah but that's yeah. your kind of amount of hours well you know 120 hours is a playthrough of, of, of Xenoblade that that doesn't even 100% the game. I know. You know, that's just pursuing your main story. And and the thing I realized is, you know, I'm a, I'm a Lord of the Rings, I'm a kind of Lord of the Rings kid, really. I yeah. just love the Tolkien stuff and I love, I, I watch the films um, back to back every year, once a year. <laughs> My fiance and I too. So. Yeah, it's the best thing. It's our favorite day of the year. Um and I feel like I know every shot of those films. Yeah. However, I could watch them a, a, a thousand times more. I'm never going to be Frodo. But when I turn on, and I'm not very good at games, general, genuinely, I'm not very good at games. But when I turn on The Witcher 3, I am Geralt of Rivia. Yeah. And Geralt's journey is only the journey I choose for him to have. 
and the diverging points in the story, the whether or not you, I can't remember what her name is, that, that spellcaster who you can choose to have an intimate moment with down by a lake and then kill her. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, they're, they're only choices that exist because of my sensibilities and my kind of the direction I wanted the story to go. Yeah. And so there's a level of immersion and culpability you have for your characters, your protagonists in games and the connection you feel with them as the player, which just is, it to me, completely outstrips the connection you have with a character on screen. Yeah. Um, that's, that's been the kind of really remarkable thing. And it accounts for why people have such a strength of feeling for games, players of games, fans of, of, of series have such a strength of feeling for them because there really isn't anything like it. No, it's a very unique experience, and I think it's hard to understand or even relate it to something unless you experience it yourself. Mm. Um, you know, I, I come from a time, I'm, I think we're basically the same age, and, you know, when I was a, a kid, people would make fun of you if you said you were a gamer. You know, that was oh. like, you were a nerd, and it was like, get get away from here, nerd. And now, to see something like uh, a show like The Last of Us come out, and people are like, this story is insane, this is amazing, it's not just a zombie show, there's like rich character relationships and things going on and it's like yeah we've been experiencing these stories for years and now people are finally getting hip to like oh that's what you guys were doing when you were a kid you were playing all these games and learning about these stories because even from an rpg sense i mean i grew up playing rpgs religiously and that was where i learned a lot of um grammar and literature and 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 words and and relationships i mean uh, a game that I'm, I'm very obsessed with that I, I, I played as a kid was called Suikoden. It was a, a Japanese uh, role-playing game. And it was about, like, you, co- you would collect um, or you would recruit, like, 108 different characters to, to join your team. And um, based off these Chinese novels. Um, and each character had, like, a different, you know, backstory and history. And you would, like, learn so much about just the way that they spoke. And I'm like... That, that's how I was learning, in addition to, like, Lord of the Rings and fantasy stuff. But it was just such a unique experience, and I'm really glad. It's a little bittersweet to know that now there's, like, the, the true revenge of the nerd, where, like, now the, the, the nerdy people are the cool people. Uh, because it's, like, <laughs> I went through the time where I was getting made fun of daily because of the stuff that I was into and I liked. Uh, but it's really great to finally see the acknowledgement of how rich these stories can be. And, and I'm with you. I think that um, storytelling... Uh, being an actor is is the part that I I love the most. I I don't to a degree, and this is why I, in my background, I I got a lot into like uh, producing. Uh, I was producing a lot of indie film because I just if there was a story that I liked and I knew needed to be told, or I just wanted to be a part of the tor- storytelling process, I didn't care what I was doing. You want me to act and then go run and move the the water bottles out of the the shot? I'll do it. Like I'm yeah. I'm I'm here to to get the story told. So I I, I really. I understand the love for storytelling. That's how I kind of describe myself to people. And I'm curious for you, when did when did you notice that bone or that itch of storytelling that translated into wanting to become a performer? Was there a moment in your childhood? And uh, you grew up in South London, correct? Was I was just there? south of London, about just half south of an London? hour south of the South London suburbs in a place called Surrey, which is a kind of very leafy sort of... Lots of people's, I mean, my dad didn't, but lots of people's dads commuted into London. Like, it's that kind of territory. Sure. Um, But yeah, I mean, I 
I am the I'm the youngest in my family, and there's a twelve year gap between me and the next youngest. So uh, my mum was an, a very experienced mum by the time she had me, <laughs> and I was um, immensely indulged in terms of imaginative play mm. and uh, recreating bits of books that I loved, recreating. Um, I was obsessed with the, um, I can't remember when it actually came out. It might have been in the 40s, maybe even earlier than that. Hmm. Uh, There was a Robin Hood that Errol Flynn did. Sure. And I was obsessed with it. And uh, one of my favorite things, incidentally, about it is it was one of those early films where they were able to do color. And so all of Robin Hood's Merry Men, there are these mad sequences in which they're about to uh, ambush a group of Guy of Gisborne's knights and they're all hiding in the trees. But because everyone was so excited by colour, they are all in the brightest colours you've <laughs> ever... Like, it's the worst camouflage ever and yet these knights are just completely oblivious. But there was a... There was a, a f- I used to, my mum used to um, make me Robin Hood costumes. Will Scarlet, who's not in that film, but I loved the character Will Scarlet. She would make me other costumes i used to kind of dress up a lot and my i I was really exacting in terms of there's a there's a fight between spoilers there's a fight in the 1948 um robin hood um between robin hood and guy of gisborne at the end of the film and i knew the fight and my dad who was a chef and was working like six hour six six day weeks like 18 hours a day in his downtime was forced to try and recreate you know each each attack and each parry accurately and i was devastated if if he didn't take it seriously (laughs) enough um but i loved telling stories i used to love writing stories and reading and i still i still kind of in the last kind of few years have kind of got back to reading i know that sounds like an unusual thing to say but i didn't kind of read for a while yeah um but i always loved I always, I mean, I think, I think I loved two things, honestly, and that there are two things that made me want to be an actor. One was I loved stories and the other was actually, I really loved people telling me I was good at something. Mm. And one of those was a great reason to get into it. And one of those actually was a super toxic reason to get into it. And it took me until my mid twenties, maybe even my late, maybe even kind of turning 30 to go, ah, external validation is not a good enough reason for your career. Um, especially when you're not necessarily, and what I want to make really clear is when I say, you know, you're not telling the stories you want to tell, I'm not referring to the last kingdom or kind of other jobs that I've had. I'm not, I'm not in any sense saying I was poorly served by my career because I really wasn't. But when all you're when all you're kind of relying on is people used to, you know, like my grandpa used to get me to stand up on a chair at family events and sing stuff from Les Miserables and everyone used to tell me how brilliant I was. That's not a good enough reason 25 years later to still be doing it. Mm. Um, So I had a kind of reckoning where I had to I had to figure out what was more important to me. Was it telling stories or was it um, being praised and kind of the realization that actually what I wanted to do was tell stories is what's allowed me now to have the career that I've got where. I'm much less concerned. I mean, I was never very good at social media and I'm still not very good at it. But it's very easy in a in a show where people have got 200,000 followers on Instagram and I've got like 
15,000 to be like, what am I doing wrong and why aren't I? And actually, that that is noise. That is yeah. completely useless. What's important is what stories do you want to tell? And now the stories I'm telling, I really love. And the rest of it, I don't really care about. And it's that's part of a journey that I think lots of creatives go on. Yeah. Um, and, and, and if there was a shortcut to it, it would be marvellous. But occasionally you have to walk through the weeds to find the path you want to be on. So that was kind of my 20s really, was just walking through the weeds. Mm, yeah, and it's such a, it's a really real thing you're talking about, I think, because there's so much that's tied to a career in the entertainment industry where looking at followers or looking at what type of um, presence you have outside of your work can do to bring you more work. So anybody who's interested in a career like this, it's hard to just say like, okay, when you're not in it and you're not in the thick of it and you're not working to be like, okay, how does me not having more followers equate to me not working more? It seems like the people who have a lot of those things, that's what makes them work more. So it yeah. creates that kind of lust for I need to become social media famous and that'll make me a famous actor. Yeah. And then I'll tell stories. It's like that becomes the last thing that you're really looking to do is tell the yeah. story. It's like you're yeah. everything's set up in the wrong way. So I truly understand that it's very real today. And it's the danger of the time that we're in from a, a performance perspective because it's like what are the things we're prioritizing when we do see social media stars getting big roles in these these stories um, and it's not necessarily a merit of their uh, acting capabilities or talent. So it's very real and I and it's uh, thank you for for sharing that. I think it's a very hard thing to kind of to reckon with, especially when you. Uh, it, it's easy to just get enveloped in the success that you had and being like, you know, I'm in all these these, these shows and things, and and why am I why am I actually doing this? What do I love about it? Uh, it, it sounds like if you were singing and performing as a kid, did I saw that you had done uh, musicals in the theater and stuff? Is that where? your performance in the theater started or did it start from doing plays and and how did that all come about was it like your mom said you should try auditioning i heard you can do that how did that origin of all of the the auditioning and getting into productions happen well i did have a very supportive family but i also had a very you know i had i had a like a nice low i mean class is a really tough thing over here uh, to define and we can get really bound up in it. I had a, like a lower middle class upbringing. I had a low or, or like maybe an upper working class upbringing, but in a very middle class area. So how I talk and where I grew up is not necessarily indicative actually of the kind of childhood I had, but still there were very few barriers to me doing what I wanted to do. Um, but what my parents did instill me with was this... Um, absolutely blind encouragement without ever pushing they they as far as they were concerned if if acting or performing or whatever it was was what i wanted to do that was fine with them that was absolutely marvelous the one thing they did suggest i do was stay in what we call a levels so sort of 17 18 you do some option what at the time were optional exams before you go to a, a sort of university mm -hmm. and i really wanted to go to a specialized performing arts college and they suggested that it might be um a really good idea for me to have literally anything tangible to fall back on <laughs> um, so i did do that and i but i but in terms of in terms of encouragement from them you know, when i was five maybe you know i went to the little and the, and side note, side note about this. You get a lot of people who, who ask how you got into it. 
and particularly when uh when someone in a kind of more of a not not the conversation we're having now but when someone in more of a fan context or you meet someone you know your mum knows someone and they say oh jackie's boy wants to do it would you have a chat with jackie's boy and you yeah. go i'll talk with jackie's boy sure and the implication is always can you tell him me the tangible steps that you took so that they can be replicated sure and the brilliant and terrible thing about the acting industry is I can tell you all the steps. It is impossible for you to replicate them <laughs> because just like, because acting or creativity in general, but let's just talk about acting because it's all I know. It has the potential to be genuinely meritocratic. Yeah. And it also has the potential to just be in, mired in nepotism and mired in luck and placement and timing. And so for me, when I'm five, I start going to the little village next to the relatively small town where I grow up. And I'm doing Saturday morning, being one of the munchkins in, in Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Uh, 11 years later, those ladies who ran that bought a small local agency, which predominantly uh, dealt with children, like child performers. I was doing a pro an amateur production of a very bloody Shakespeare play called Titus Andronicus in a hut out the back in a sports center car park. Um, and they happened to come and see it and happened to say to me, hey, not seen you for a while. Would you like to come and audition for our agency? I said, yes, obviously. So I signed with them in the last year of this two-year educational thing that my parents had suggested I do. <laughs> um, which it turns out was a bad time to do that. Mm. And uh, from them, I got... Uh, I had a, a, thank God, unaired Nickelodeon pilot, in which I... I can only assume the reason it was unaired is because my performance corroded the film. Oh, like it was, it was, it was, it was a wretched <sighs> bit of work, but I learned a huge amount. I was also late for my first ever day as an actor because my alarms didn't go off and they called me at like 10 in the morning. And as an actor, you know how late 10 o'clock is being like, Harry, are you at any point coming to work? <laughs> I've had um, the same thing happen. Oh me. God. It oh. was just, I was just like, this is it. This is my career over. Um, but I did some work in my last year of, of what's my A-level, so high school. Real quick, did, though, I, was that a Nickelodeon pilot that was for something that was going to be shot in London? Or did you come to the States to do that? No, it was in the UK. It was, um, I shot it in a, in Leeds in the north of England. Okay. And again, I'd like, never been away from home by myself. I'd never stayed in a hotel alone. I was like 17 and a month. You know, it was like, I was really green. Wow, And yeah. then I kind of really fortuitously got the lead in a BBC drama with Imelda Staunton in it who plays Dolores Umbridge in in Harry Potter sure and that was a 90 minute thing and I did that and then I did a, a I had about three lines in a radio play with Tom Hiddleston I think I can't really remember him and I'm sure he wouldn't remember me um and then I I finished my A-levels and I was like well I want to go drama school but I want to go to drama school, um, but I, I was I started school a little bit early, so by the time I finished, I was only seventeen, mm. and typically you get to drama school sort of eighteen, nineteen, and I looked very young. I was playing thirteen-year-olds at this point, and all the advice from people around me was, you know, give yourself a year and go and actually live a little bit. 
So I thought, well, I've got an agent. I might as well. I'll go and get a job. So I went and got a job cleaning the cleaning the um, offices of the police union. Uh, and then the hoover on my back gave me an allergy attack. So instead, they I served breakfasts. Um, so that last that job lasted a day. Uh, and then I got an audition because, as I said, this agency I'd signed with had a really good reputation f- for young young actors, children mm. performers, and there was a big casting drive for a original British cast of what at the time was a very successful musical on Broadway called Spring Awakening. Yep. And they wanted unknowns. Well, I was that. And fortunately, the pull of this, as I say, tiny agency that operated out of a very small village near the small town where I grew up meant that the casting director came to see just their clients. So me and my friend Ed from the year above me at school were both in Spring Awakening. Um, And my friend Luke and me, Luke and Ed had played uh, Angera, Javert and Marius respectively in our local youth theatre in the like school's version of Les Mis. Uh, Luke was last three for Melchior, ended up originating the role of Moses and the Prince of Egypt in on the West End. Um, and then Ed and I were in Spring Awakening. So it was, it was blind luck that led me there. Yeah. And then Spring Awakening did very well in a in its original theatre. And then we moved to the West End and we moved to a very big theatre, which we couldn't fill. And after a couple of months, we closed. But for those two months, it was like, it was the best shot window in London, really. And what that allowed me to do was move into new writing in in, in theatre. And I stayed there, um, working in different theatres in London and Manchester for about a year and a half. And then my, my, my brilliant agent said, I want to get you some more TV. And, and so they just did. <laughs> and um I sign that a, off okay yeah, sure like, cool, right cool, order. so i did a tv show a tv drama um over here which did quite well and then i immediately got my my first and only actually lead in a really interesting indie film that i think was probably produced 10 years before anyone was talking about the things that it was about because it was all about gender identity um and i just lived this charmed life really i mean in in the first from 2008 to 2014, uh, the longest I was ever between jobs without knowing I had a job to go to was two weeks. Mm. Um, and I went from job to job to job. And that was brilliant. And then ultimately terrifying because people would say to me, you will spend some time out of work. And I would say, yeah, no, I know. And in my head, I'm thinking, you fool. I'm a generational talent. Uh, I shan't spend any time out of work. I will. I am. I'm my. I'm. I'm Mark Rylance, but young. Um, and of course, I'm not. But all the time oh, you're working, you're on. able to. I'm not Mark. Uh, Rylance, well, but listen, young. Mark Rylance is one of my favorite actors of all time. Oh, but he's you, the, you, he's, he's the best. Yeah, he's the best. To, uh, um, to put a pin real quick, because I want to talk about something. Just because you, you touched upon it before, and before we we get too far from this, but. I appreciate you mentioning kind of the blind luck leading you to a lot of these opportunities and you know you just so it so happened to be the theater that you went to as a kid they just so happened to open up an agency and then these casting offices just so happened so there's a lot of factors that are completely out of your control that are leading you to these opportunities but the thing that's not accounted for by by my understanding is that you had to have had some ounce of talent that was allowing you to capitalize on these these opportunities as a kid sure 
born with pipes sure <laughs> but but yes i think it did I, I mean obviously i'd be i'd be lying if i didn't say i don't have some natural aptitude for it that mm. would just be false like grotesque false modesty yeah and i have a really healthy ego um it's only become healthy recently. It was probably an unhealthy ego for a long time. But <laughs> I have a I have a pretty good sense of my worth and my range and what I think I'm capable of. And I didn't know how to be in the industry if I didn't think I could not only succeed but really excel. Mm, okay. Um, and uh, that's sometimes a really great thing because it means myself, my self belief, while it gets knocked by negativity, it's pretty unshakable. Um, but more than anything now, what I try to foster in myself is a kind of growth mindset about learning and developing. Uh, and I'm less kind of concerned with what people think these days. Sure. And I just think that's a virtue of, for me, just a virtue of being in my thirties. I just care so much less than I used to. But, but, you know, the other thing that, that was a factor was I did actually work really hard and I was told, I remember sitting in the stalls for when we were doing the tech rehearsals for Spring Awakening. So this would have been maybe January 2009. And the musical supervisor saying, you know, the real, the real, the um, reason you got this job is because you wanted it so much. Um, I mean, we won't get too into the weeds with this particular anecdote, but essentially the stage before, the last stage of Spring Awakening auditions was a workshop, a, a seven day workshop at a theater I mean, actually, it's pretty horrendous now when you think about it, but you're, I was so new, I had no idea this is not how you do things. <laughs> we were all in a big room, and there was two or three of us for each part. And they'd go, right, we're going to sing this song. You sing that, you sing that, you sing that, you sing that. And you'd stand up, and you'd watch the person next to you, and they'd sing it, and then you'd sit down. And then you. And it was this weird, like, boot camp where you were seeing the people who you were competing with and going into a room to work with. And every time they do something and they miss a note, you'd be like, yes! Um... But I, just before that session, just before that round of the auditions had been told, um, you're on standby, but we don't think we, we don't think it's going to be you. <sighs> so I then, my mum uh, was, had taken me to uh, a, a city called Guildford to um, commiserate with me about not getting this job that I desperately wanted. And I was using my birthday money to buy a pair of shoes. And I got a phone call saying, actually, we might have changed our minds. Do you want to come in for the workshop? This was maybe three hours into the workshop so I don't know I don't know what happened in between I don't know who screwed up um but they brought me in and what that really did is it really focused me so spring awakening was the kind of job where I loved it very much but as you can if I say to you the average age of the cast was about 20 and it was pretty much everyone's first job you can imagine the fraught frantic hypersexualized musical theater energy of that company <laughs> and that production and um there is, I've got some really great friends from it still. Uh, but when everyone else was um, celebrating their first day in the workshop by going and having a drink, I went back to my room, went over my notes, woke up two hours before the, the workshop started, did a full vocal warm-up and came in ready to work. And other people were like, oh, can we do a warm-up before we start? And then they're being read the sort of, read the riot act of, you should do this before, you know, you should arrive to work, ready to work. And I'd already kind of done it. Mm. And I think it, I was very driven. Um, so I was driven and I was lucky and I was talented on a, on, on, on a kind of basic level. I had decent raw materials. Um, but yes, so much of it is circumstance. Yeah. 
And and even the way in which I moved into voice work was the writers. I'd gone in and done some work on Assassin's Creed Valhalla mm. through a casting. And I was playing these little parts. And then I got something from my voice agent. They were like, "They've you've been offered like a, a more work in Valhalla. I was like, oh, cool. It wasn't called Valhalla back then. I didn't actually know what it was. And um, I looked at this. They were like, I think it's quite, it's actually like a proper part. And I was like, oh, amazing. And I looked at it and I started to read it. And I was reading it um, and said, does this sound like Ethelwald, which is my character in Last Kingdom to you? I was like, this sounds a lot like, and then at the bottom, the reference, character reference said Ethelwald from the Last Kingdom, but without the edge. And it turned out that the writers of Valhalla were kind of, enjoyed the last kingdom in fact magnus brun who plays knut in last kingdom sure. is the male evil and they had written this character based on ethelwald and then we're like who are we going to get to do it and they were like hang on we've already got ethelwald so we just <laughs> ask him to do it and so even that even that is is fortuitous yeah um and and you know the rest of the stuff that i've done in games I like to think I've done on off my own back, but still, you know, I got in the door through circumstance. Yeah, again. and I think that I think that happens for a lot of actors. I think it'd be very rare to find somebody who didn't find themselves in another job in a very long career that didn't come from saying, "Oh, they knew them from this thing," or they had worked with so and so who said they were great. I feel like that happens a lot in this industry. A lot of people talk, and a lot of people like working with people who they know. And if they idolize a performance they've seen, they sometimes try to seek out those performers to get them involved in their projects. But and so in, in Spring Awakening, too, which is was one of my favorite musicals growing up, I come from a very uh, our, our timelines of life are very similar. And that was something that I had been auditioning for in regional theaters in New Jersey when I was growing up. But I am not as talented vocally. So thankfully, I did not get those parts <laughs> when I was auditioning. But um, it sounds like you had some natural ability to sing and you were, you know, had been doing that in your life. At what point or where in your life, if you had not gone to, gone to drama school, where did your understanding for understanding character or at least how you were going to break down scripts and performance and, and all of the things that I think – and, and this is something I've talked about a lot on this podcast and it's great when I hear people who don't have the traditional story of I went to Yale or I went to RADA or whatever it is for people here in the States – when we don't have that traditional conservatory uh, methodology of learning performance. But for you, when I see a lot of your performances, they have such deep nuance. It's, it's hard for me as another performer to say, like, what are they not? What are they doing? Because it is so nuanced. You know, <laughs> when you see nuance like that and you see somebody so in the moment, it's hard to not be curious of what the method is or what the at least the, the game plan is walking into some of these to these jobs or to that moment on set to like, how are you allowing for such freedom to be so nuanced? Did you have a certain moment where you were either reading about acting or like just watching other performers or watching movies and trying to emulate what became the, um, from a dramatic standpoint or even comedic standpoint, you know, straight acting for you to say, this is how I need to train to do this for your, your for yourself. I think it has a sort of three part answer. Um, number one is that I think there's an extent to which uh, if you have a basic, if you have a decent understanding of psychology, and, and I mean amateur psychology, God, I couldn't talk to you about psychology, but an understanding of the way people think and why they do the, why they do the things they do. I think I was, I think I'm relatively emotionally perceptive. Hmm. Uh, 
And I think that's very useful. Um, and, you know, I, how does my... I, I remember hearing a story. I worked with a director who worked with Judy Dench. And he said he came to her in, in the... She was staring at, in the corner at rehearsals, sort of doing this sort of scrunchy thing with her face and sort of cycling through all these emotions. And he went, are you, are you all right? Is, is everything okay? And she went, oh yeah, I'm just trying to figure out which face I'm going to do. And I kind <laughs> of love that. Um, but I think there were, there were a couple of jumping off points for me. One was in the first ever play I did. So when we were directed in Spring Awakening, we were directed very much in the way I'd been directed at school and in youth theatre, which was, okay, um, you come on here, you stand here, you look, you do a thing, and you kind of mimic almost, and you try to inhabit it a little bit. But by and large, you're sort of working by numbers. Um, and there was an amazing actor called Sean Thomas who played all the adult female parts in Spring Awakening. And she was the first person who ever used to say to me, she used to, I used to go to her dressing room and ask for advice on what could I do in the scene tonight? What could, how could I, do? I mean, I'm sure I must have driven her insane. <sighs> um, you know, what could I do tonight? What could I try? And she always used to say, she always used to say, you're an artist. And she was the first person who'd ever, ever called me that. And I would try, she would give me a point of focus in a scene. She would give me something to try, whether it was delaying something for a moment or whether it was thinking about something else or engaging with something on an emotional level. And that was kind of training in a sense. And then the first time I ever did a play, I did a, a really brilliant um play called punk rock by a writer called simon stevens mm. and the first day was was you know what a lot of first days are in theater where and i didn't i'd never been in a professional play before i'd done a musical but it was very different um i didn't i turned up fully off book knowing all my lines for the entire play because i thought that was what you meant to do <laughs> and very quickly realized no one else had done that so I pretended to read it from the script for two <laughs> weeks um and actually that uncovered a flaw, which I'll talk about um, in a moment. But we were reading the script. We read the whole thing through. So the producer and the artistic director of the theatre could hear and the designer was there and blah, 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 blah. And then they all go away and you start working through the script. As a company, there were, I think, maybe seven people in the cast, maybe eight. And we start working on, uh, we start working on, on the script. And the director at some point within the kind of first couple of hours turned to me and my character did something, said something, arrived on stage. We were just sat around the table and she said, what do you think about that, Harry? And I th thought, I had no idea I was supposed to think anything. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I walked on, said all the letters in the right order, in the words, and then I left. Uh... And, and that was the first time someone had asked me about the why mm. in performance. Why are you doing the things you're doing? Um, and why is always so much more important than how. How is irrelevant. How takes care of itself. But why is the only question you ever really need to ask. Um, and then I realised that I had this incredible opportunity to sit in rooms with people who've been doing it for three times longer than me and shut up and listen and watch and go, why is that good and why does that work? And what are they doing there? And ask questions. And one of the one, a play I did relatively soon after that one I'm referring to, I was the second youngest in the cast and the oldest in the cast, I think was 72. And there were about 15 people in the play. 
Um, in fact, one of them was Tanya Moody, who I've literally just seen has just got a job in, has just been confirmed in the new Rings of Power, which is amazing. She's absolutely lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had all these amazing actors and I just sat there and tried to figure out how they were doing things. And then 2014 came around, which was, as I say, the period where I suddenly was out of work. Mm. I was doing um, I was doing a TV show called Episodes and I was planning on, I thought I was returning for season four for them, which would have been my third season. And um, and then they suddenly said, actually, we've written your character out. Uh, and I and I panicked. I blind panicked. And I completely changed the way in which I started working on scripts. I'd been taught a technique called uniting or eventing, which is essentially breaking down scripts into um, kind of collective energy, chunks of collective energy. Every time something changes for everyone in the space, there's a new unit and you kind of give that a name. And it helps you understand what I always think of as like the flow of a river. That while it might be described as, you know, your scene starts here and it ends here. And it's very easy to act in straight lines and think in straight lines and go, oh, okay, I know where I start. I know where I finish. So I'll just pick the most direct route to that. And then when you think about the way a river flows, it might be described as flowing north, but ultimately it flows east, it flows south for a while, then it flows northwest west and then but generally speaking it flows north and what uniting and eventing does without getting too deeply into it for me it allows me to understand all the turns of the river Mm. and all the different views that i've suddenly got all the different perspectives on things um i've been taught how to do that by a combination of two directors one called joe murphy who i did a play with in 2012 and another called uh, Lindsay turner who i worked with in 2013 and i'd seen the way they'd broken down scripts and I just asked people. I just asked people how what they did. I learned about this thing called actioning, which sometimes is useful, sometimes isn't. I learned about various bits of things just by osmosis. And um, when I got this audition to play, actually to play Alfred the Great in The Last Kingdom, um, my agent, who I'd been with since Spring Awakening, who knew me very well and knew all the buttons motivationally to push with me, um, said, I-, I want you to know there's an audition and they don't think you can do it. Um, they don't think you're capable of this character. They think you're just a comedy actor because it was the same casting team as as had worked on episodes. Okay. And so I was filled with righteous rage, decided I was going to show the world just how much of an artist I could be. And so actually I worked incredibly hard on this script I, it was the first time I'd written things down on a script, really, you know, deep text work and thought about it and knew it inside out and knew I probably wasn't going to get the part because yeah. I was 10 years too young. Um, but it changed the way in which I approached my work. And then off the back of that, they said, actually, we don't think you're right for Alfred, to which my response was, you're correct. <laughs> um, but there's this other character called Ethelwald that we'd like you to audition for. And I remember getting the script and going... Ask me. I'm going to get that. And I've thought that before and been right. I've thought that before and been wrong. Sure. And they're the really devastating ones, actually. When you think... And you can still be correct when you think, you know what, no one can do this like me. No one can play this part like me. And, uh, and no one can. I mean, no one can, because we're all our own unique... Um, we, we all have a unique perspective on things. Sure. Um, but that was a, a role where I went, I'm going to get this. And... I think I can do a really good job. And that was down to, the fact I got it, I think was down to this new way of working where I suddenly went, I think I need some technique here. As Frankenstein as it was, and incomplete as it will have been from a deep follower of Stanislavski or a genuine follower of 
Brecht or Meisner or, or Lee Strasberg or Uta Hagen or whoever it might be, I had my own approach yeah. and it kind of worked. I think that's really brilliant. And I, it, it just, and it kind of goes back to what you were saying in the beginning. There's not this one size fits all follow this process to end up in a career that is successful. There's so many other factors that are involved um, in a career in this industry, but also for you, whatever you had done, it allowed you to find a role that you felt was really resonated with you, albeit maybe even close to you in some regards. I have to imagine that there's some parts of you, even just from talking to you now, that has a little bit of those Ethelwald sensibilities where, <laughs> you know, you, you, you find ways to uh, find the joke or, or be a little bit of that fool to a degree. I, I, I When I watch that show, and this is a great time to start t- talking about it, I mean, this show... I was a, a, a diehard fan of, of Game of Thrones. I had read a lot of the books up in, I read up to like book three and then I started watching the, the show and that became, it was very hard to read those books, but I really enjoyed them. <laughs> there are a lot to get through. Um, and I, I was, that was a, a really, uh, a, it was a great show for me for the things that I liked. And I found the things that I didn't like about Game of Thrones, I found everything in The Last Kingdom that it had so many the performances were so good the writing was exceptional there was just so much about it i remember the first episode i watched and i'm curious about the whole bbc netflix thing if this had a part of it. the first episode i watched i didn't know if it was like a a live reenactment thing like there's a first couple of frames where it seemed a little <laughs> bit like you know the the retelling moment of like uh, an old war or something and but everyone kept saying to watch this show i was like all right i'll give it a shot and then as it got through and, and as different characters like your character got introduced, I just kept seeing all these amazing performances. I mean, uh, and, and Ethelwald for me was just like someone who I resonated with so much. This person who had to find humor and use intellect rather than brawn and brute strength. You know, you're not Uhtred. You, you're, you're, you really related to kind of what I loved in Tyrion Lannister in Game of Thrones. You found ways of scheming behind the scenes and using people in the ways that would benefit you to get ultimately what the main character of the show was also trying to get. It's like we were both promised these things from our birth and we don't have them and there's so many great scenes that you have where you you're literally saying that you're like this is this is our fate and um i wanted to talk about one of these these moments um where you know your character goes through such a great journey that i i've loved you know you see from being that fool that kind of <laughs> even lesser than some of the bastards that are thrown away and kind of just hundred percent kept around because you you have to be you're like a set piece to alfred um but you know as we get towards the later parts of the season you know we get to the moment where you are are forced to kind of reconcile with alfred for your crimes for for what you've done and that for me was one of those moments in your performance that i had loved up until that moment but to see the world crumble for you so it's like you have an insane arc in this like one episode where you go from you thinking you're going to be on top of the world everything you've wanted is going to be fulfilled to oh shit my own uncle is about to punish me in such a crude way to you then accepting this um disfigurement that you're left with and finding strength within your your punishment I know that's a lot right there to unpack, but it was such a brilliant moment in your performance. And to see you, it's like, it's when you say, like, I know why, you, you, when you say, I, I think I'm going to get this part, 
did those things come naturally when you're getting those scripts and you're like, I know how I'm going to do this. Did it terrify you? Was it inspiring, exciting to get to work on that type of material? Like, can you distill a little bit of that whole moment with playing at the wall in those and in, in that episode or those scenes? I think that what that what those moments and those scenes represented was the culmination of the kind of high point of my hypothesis of what the character was going to be when I got that original breakdown mm. in 2014. And I remember saying at the time, you know, to those closest to me that um, if I get the chance to do, to take him where I think he could go, he could be so exciting. Yeah. And to me, that was, that was the transcending of the bratty child and then the transcending of the clown, which he is, uh, he is those things, and he certainly begins of the, as those things, to a, to a deeply narcissistic Machiavellian um, antagonist who has lost, lost sight of his morals and maybe even his faith, and is just dogged in his pursuit of his own success and his own. Um, his own sort of understanding of what he's entitled to. I, I loved playing him so much. And I think what I'm really grateful for is that, particularly in series two, series two is a really tricky series for me because I'm not really doing anything on paper. Mm. You could kind of, apart from a point where I take Uhtred to see what I believe is a dead man rising from his grave. There's not really anything that I'm the engine behind. Uh, and it could, it, the, the, the character at that point could have devolved into uh, an, a sort of edgeless, sort of flabby, flabby joke um, without any drive, without any motivation, just someone to occasionally be told to shut up in rooms while other people were doing things. And what the writers did so brilliantly was they, there was there was one amazing scene which got cut, and I'm really gutted it got cut. I might I've spoken about this before, but it's I think it's always worth repeating. Um, there's a period when, um, when we when we meet Ethelwell in the beginning of season two, he's really tried to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. He's sitting on the on the Witten. He's not raising armies. He's not trying to kill anyone. He's trying to be taken seriously as a politician and fulfill his role. And he's being completely sidelined by Alfred. And so when he's sent north to an incredibly dangerous mission to accompany Uhtred, who is a complete loose cannon and told you're, you're there to make sure that he doesn't go off the rails, it's an impossible task. And there's a fantastic scene that was written between uh, Ethelwald and Bayoka. And Ian Hart, who plays Bayoka is a, a real mentor of mine, a great friend, uh, someone who I hold in the highest regard. And um, we had this great scene together that was written where um, I say to Bianca, I think Uhtred and, um, and Ragnar, because we've met up with Ragnar at this point, are going to go north and try and kill Kiartan and retake Darnholm. And Bianca says, well, what are you going to do about that? And I say, well, really, it's my job to stop them doing it. So if I go with them, I'm a traitor and I'm going to die. And if I leave now, I'm a traitor and I'll probably be killed. And I think Alfred 
expects me to run and just hopes I'm going to die. And Bayok says, so what are you going to do then? And Ethelwald says um, something like, I'm going to disappoint him and I'm going to live for a very long time. I'm going to outlive Alfred. <laughs> and to me, that then kind of gives the reasoning, which we sort of, so that, that, that scene was like in a script and then out of a script and then in a script and then out of a script. And we never quite, the schedule never allowed us to actually shoot it. Um, but to me, that is his justification for everything he does from that point on he has tried being the good person and it hasn't worked and so he goes you know what i'm never going to do anything while alfred's king but one day he's not going to be around and when that happens i'm going to make sure everything is in order and as flawed as the execution of the plan was he's really close in season three he's really close he's making alliances i mean the thing i love about I, that scene for me that, that you've spoken about in the trial scene is the high point for me of my my I don't necessarily mean on an artistic level, but like on a character level yeah. and in my memory of it, it's the high point of my work on that show. I loved doing that scene so much. I was working with David, um, who plays Alfred. David is, again, a, a, a great actor and a great person. And I admired David for a long time before I got to work with him. Uh, and it was always difficult to work with David in the best way possible because you have to match him. Because he's 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 that good, yeah. Um, and so you know, it's he's leg day at the gym. Like you know, you're gonna come out sore. <laughs> um, but he, I was I was getting to work with him, and what I love is even as Alfred goes away to consider Ethelwald's fate after I've constructed this web of lies and deceit and half truths and self-aggrandizing. Um, rewriting of history, even as he's going away to consider my fate, I'm still turning to people and saying, and trying to sow yet more seeds of dissent within the court. I know. And <laughs> it's such a brilliant thing. And then, as you say, I'm, I'm suddenly condemned. Um, the stuff without the eye, generally speaking, I look back on with a touch of disappointment on a technical level, because I didn't realize that if I kept my eye line as low as I did, you lose my one good eye a lot of the time. Mm. And I look back and all I can see is the bits where I think, I wish I just raised my eye line ever so slightly and kept my face more alive. Um, but I, that was not that I needed rewarding because the work and the people and also like the financial remuneration was reward enough for being on that show. But that the end of, series three is the reward was the reward for me and there was stuff happening in that show that is not in the books the 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 killing of ragnar is not in the books the blinding is not in the books and so every time these two scripts would come out as a pair whether it was five or six seven and eight nine and ten you just i couldn't believe my luck i kept i felt like i kept pulling aces and just going this is this is the bet this is what i've been hoping for you know very very lucky to get to do that with it and to see a character through from the beginning to the end mm. not you don't get to do that very often in tv you're you're commissioned for a series and if you're lucky you get another one and if you're really lucky you might get a third but i've had i've, I've played characters where i thought this could go somewhere and then it just doesn't and to actually see him through to his fruition was was pretty amazing what a gift on so many levels and it sounds like the writers even with that scene that didn't get shot it gives you such perspective to just even consume that and fuel yeah. the yeah. the vehicle that's going on for yourself to say what can i do and bring to um yeah. this character that's it's and, 
And that scene still happened. We just never saw it. Yeah. But that scene still happened. Like, as far as I'm concerned, sure. they had that conversation because ha- because it motivates everything. You take that scene away, you take away all the motivation for me. So that scene still happened. I mean, you talk about working uh, with David and, and, you know, being forced to like what you said, it's the most difficult in any way. How did that manifest for you in 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 terms of performing? Did it just be like, did it... Was it to, to you saying yourself like, okay, I did all my homework and now I need to just like shut the brain off and just be present? Is that was there was that like kind of the most difficult moment for you or the most challenging as an actor just to be able to be like everything I need is right in front of me and it's up to my instrument at this point in the homework I did to just react <laughs> in the way that yeah. it should. That's exactly what it is. It's a little bit like um. And I don't know, I'm going to do some guesswork here. You know when you see really, really great table tennis players Mm. and one person is on the attack and the other person is just putting the ball back over the net. That's all they can do because there's such ferocity of energy and intent coming towards them. I fancy that at that point, they're not really thinking about what they're doing. They're just relaxed enough that their body knows what to do. Yeah. And that's what that scene was like, that I, I'd, prepped the crap out of it i really had i'd worked really hard at that scene and everything surrounding it and i really knew where i was and i really knew what i was tr- what he was trying to do and i always prepped a scene i always prep a scene as if i'm the lead as if the scene is only about my journey and then you get into the space with other people and you realize um ah, okay so these five or six moments that i had selfishly planned for me and selfish in this sense is not a pejorative term that I selfishly planned for me. I'm going to keep a couple of those because actually those moments are really important for them. And so I know where I am. I know what I'm intending to do. And then you go, now I'm just going to listen to everything that's happening mm. and trust that my trust that my body or whatever it is, or my, my brain knows what I'm doing. And so it's a, it's a really really like thrilling and freeing thing it's a little bit like i used to have this sensation when i was on stage where you you you'd take a beat or there would be a moment of silence in the middle of a a monologue and i'd have this sort of out of body experience where i'd think i could wait for as long as i wanted and everyone's here with me and I, in those moments, I would almost feel like, you know, there was that thing that Michael Jackson used to do where he would lean very far forward over his feet yeah. and wouldn't fall over. I'd feel like I could do that. I'd feel like I could kind of mess with the laws of nature a bit, which I know sounds insane and egotistical and egomaniacal, but what it, it wasn't about controlling other people. It was just about an incredible like feeling of solidity around me that I just knew things were going well. I knew I could make choices that were, that, that I, I knew I was about to make choices that I hadn't planned on making, but they were going to work. And that happened maybe six times in my career. <laughs> but one of the days was that. One of the days was that, where, where you just, it just came together. Wow. And we, were, and, we were, and we kind of ran it all as one scene. So we, run, we ran the interrogation, out went David and Eliza, and I can't actually recall who, maybe who else was up there. And then, may well have been Bianca. And then I have my moment with Sigurbrit where I'm trying to sow rebellion. And then they come back in. 
And then we played the sentencing and we played the whole thing continuous. And it was just the best. It was just the best. If I could go back and do one day of my career again, I'd probably do that. Wow. I, I mean, it. I, I appreciate the performances uh, like that so much because as an actor, those are the moments that you pick out that inspire you. And you're like, that's, that's why you're doing it. Those moments that the, where the new, and again, you, you give credit to your scene partner sometimes too. You were, you were talking about, you know, having those out of body experiences. I don't know if I've ever talked about this on this show. I had a, because of the times of this pandemic that we experienced the last three years, you know, working in person with a lot of people over that time was, was far and few. And I had an audition for a mocap thing and it was a callback. And I was working with another performer. It was the first time in a while that I had been like allowed to work um, <laughs> in person with someone. Forget on camera stuff. I mean, that wasn't even happening. And I, I, I went up doing this performance. It was down to like me and two other people. Ultimately, at the end of this, I didn't get it. But I had such a rewarding experience and I laid so much out. It was like a, a cathartic you know, like it, it was more for me than it was for anybody else there. You know, I was, I, I, I literally laid it bare and I felt so great. And I said, this is very well, not right for what they're looking for, but God damn, if it doesn't like affect somebody in this room, then I got to get out of this business because you know, <laughs> like you're and, and the credit to having a great scene partner being there to reward you. And again, I ultimately didn't get the part, but it's one of my most favorite. It's one of my favorite performances of the past few years that I've had because it was so uh, freeing for me. And I got to work on it with multiple times. And the studio has since called me back in for a, a lot of other different things. And that's kind of the win in this career totally. is to, to do that. Um, if you don't mind, I would love to jump to a little bit of Xenoblade Chronicles if you have a mm, moment. Sure. Because yeah, that, that is a game that, um, I was a fan. I mean, I played Xenogears when I was a kid and I was obviously, um, you know, these type of games have been a huge part of my life. They've shaped who I am in, in more ways than one. Like all of my sensibilities are derived from these type of, of games and these characters where I feel like I am being seen in some way. <laughs> um, and your character Noah in, in, in Xenoblade is, um, it's like your character has such great, again, another performance where you see such great moments of this story hit me. I'm, I'm going to jump around a bit here before I get to your question here. <laughs> but this story hit me in so many different ways where it really like, especially in this time right now where it's like movie scenes happening in this in this game. There are like full on, like I felt like I watched like episodes of a TV series like at a time where these characters are going through things and talking about this world and, sh you know, short lifespans and living and why are we fighting? And then ultimately having somebody say, you guys are fighting the wrong person. These are not the people who are, are doing this to you. And then people start fighting again. Like these moments that are happening in this game and to see your character as kind of the centrical figure who is leading this group of people, trying to unite people, trying to find further meaning in the world, trying to... Uh, protect the people that they care about and then also being forced with moments to be like I, I remember um, I think Lance says like you better not ho hold us back right now and you're like oh I'm not gonna hold you guys back right now <laughs> you know and to see your performance in that in that way um, go through this insane journey it, like it this game more than like really any other game that I've experienced and I've played some freaking great games in the past year we talk about The Witcher we talk about you know even Assassin's Creed all these games but from an RPG perspective of this kind it goes everywhere and for you as a performer being in this what is 
I think you could probably relate to this being in the protagonist position, which I've been in and a lot of people here knowing, you know, oftentimes those moments are pretty kind of straightforward to a degree as the protagonist. It's like, I'm going to be the hero. I'm going to do the heroic thing. I'm going to look out for my friends and I'm going to stand up for what's right and what's good. But for you to have these moments where it's really kind of again, nuanced and finding the vulnerability or finding the anger and the rage and what this character seems to be really righteous and noble. What was that like for you to be, um, was that, did you have to find moments for yourself where you were like, I am going to interpret this in this way and, and, and find something that I'm resonating with to, to bring that to life? Like, what was that whole experience to finding those little nitty gritty nuanced moments that I really believe make this game a standout in terms of the voice performances? Oh, thank you. I, I think, well, I mean, I think to, to to very briefly talk about when you were saying it was like episodes of TV shows, mm-hmm. I remember saying at one point, we were doing this great big, ch- it might have even been stuff from end of chapter five. Um, I remember saying, what, sorry, when is this, when does this happen? <laughs> when does, it, when is this scene happening? And they then they said, in the middle of the fight. And I couldn't believe that. I, I, I just, I was staggered by, you know, that when you, t- when you, when you do um, Assassin's Creed or you, you take something like The Witcher, you have, in bet- you know, there's a little cutscene as you arrive at your objective and someone goes, fresh tracks. And they go, looks like it. And they go, we should keep going. And they keep going. And, and yet, here we are in, in Xenoblade ruminating on the nature of identity and loss and war and love for 40 minutes in during a battle Mm. it it, i couldn't believe the breadth and the intensity of the storytelling i couldn't believe how brave the writing is and i know that like you know you know, like, like, you know, stop it. Stopping someone from dropping a bomb is brave. Like everything's relative, but the bra- the kind of the bravery of the writing, there's no other kind of word that I've got for it. Um, and the, just the confidence of going, no, nah, this will hold dramatically. This will hold. And people, that's what people are here for. Mm. And we, you know, th- my work in that game was, the most complete and varied and broad spectrum of of emotions I've ever kind of got to play, mm. ever. Um, and I think what I really loved is I've never, due to many things, not least of them aesthetics, I've never played a protagonist on screen. I've never played a hero on screen because I don't look right for heroes, but I can sound like one. And... Not only is he not just a hero, he's he's a complex hero and he has moments of frailty and he has moments of weakness and he has moments of anger and he has moments, he has he does a lot of learning, like a huge amount of learning. And so many protagonists kind of come out fully formed and they never really, they don't really go on journeys, they don't really shift from where they started. And I, I am, what I kind of, again, really love about, about video games in general is generally speaking when you work on them you start at the beginning and you finish at the end and so you go on the journey with the character mm. and so the first time you're experiencing something is the first time you're experiencing something and if you can if you can get your 
you're kind of if you can get a grip on them early doors i feel like you're just in this position then where if you've got a good team around you of people who you who you trust and we had a great team um you're you're in you're in their hands as much as they're in yours and there's this kind of synergy of intent between you and the creatives working on the game and you go this just seems to fit this just seems to make sense and i don't think i mean i'm sure there were moments in the recording process when i couldn't get it tonally i was kind of missing it but generally speaking it just kind of it just sat really well with me the whole thing sat well it was a genuinely just like it was such a joy <laughs> the whole process was such a joy and um i mean i suppose i haven't really answered your question in terms of how do you deal with those darker moments but you just it they just happen yeah and and the, and you just jump on the train and and you'd stay on it for as long as you can you just hold on and it's it was great i yeah there's again i think you you you're hitting the nail on the head and and you have to just be willing and open and trust a lot of stuff trust yourself trust the writing trust that you were picked for this job for a certain reason and that you have the skill to take it to where it needs to go and some aptitude yeah, yeah. and and that trust <laughs> is important but it's it's also because i think about a lot of these titles especially as someone who goes out for a, a lot of similar things and it's like there's a handful of people who could have been put in these positions for different roles what roles that i've done a role like noah there's you know various people who for whatever reason could have been given that role but when you see a certain person do something and you say that is a unique thing especially in the world of dubbing where it's very technical and oftentimes challenging to find those really nuanced moments when you have all these bumpers that are preventing you from going so far outside the lines i mean like you say you you're watching a scene happen and it's not you for the first time interpreting how that scene happens it's okay i have to interpret how this scene is happening for this character that i'm watching find my version of that within those guidelines and then still find that nuance so when i see somebody making those choices like that you made in this game it's a whole other layer of um admiration that i have because i know how difficult it is sometimes when you're forced <laughs> to hit those certain markers um and follow along the guideline that's kind of presented for you uh and and still make it really rich and, and on every moment know that that person is they're in it it's sometimes hard to be in it. Sometimes it's an aid, but sometimes it can be, for me, I've experienced a hindrance. So I just, mm. I, I praise those type of moments, and that's why I'm, I'm always glad when I see uh, games that across the board have those type of performances and actors. Uh, it's kind of kudos to the casting, too, to find the people and saying, like, that person can take this to where it needs to go. So uh, thank you. Yeah. It's, it's the, 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 I've done quite a lot of, of dubbing of foreign language stuff. And I really, I didn't realize how much I'd love it until I started doing it. So the um, the All Quiet on the Western Front that's done really well recently, I, I'm one of the characters in that. And there were a couple of, you know, TV series in German and some um, some German stuff and some Swedish and some Israeli stuff and I think some Turkish stuff. Yeah. Um, but there's an amazing thing that happens when you're dealing with a pre-existing blueprint is that it's a little bit like understudying someone and getting one night to do it you can't you can't screw the rhythm too much because everyone else is relying on you to stay relatively 
relatively true yeah. and so obviously you know in terms of games often you're sort of you're almost like understudying the developer understudying the animator understudying um uh the writer and you're like this is the window as you say in which i have to operate but how i get there and it kind of almost comes back to that thing i was talking about a, like a while ago about those turns in the river yeah. um and understanding the little kind of movements that you can make while heading in the right direction is you go actually, there's everything in between point a and point z is up to me as long as i hit a and z we're kind of okay mm. and that was that's what's really interesting and that's what's really challenging i think that's what's so thrilling about working on games is and and, and you know and kind of dubbing stuff in general um is the technical constraints of it like, like you touched on it's it's deeply technical and very creative at the same time and it's very unusual to have both of those things coexisting mm. or or at least trying to create peaceful coexistence between those things yeah it's if for anybody listening who's interested in, in this type of work it's you you can come from the theater you can come from tv and film and stuff but the second you walk into a recording studio for specifically a game that you're dubbing you're presented with a whole other set of uh technicalities that you'll that you like how can you replicate those in in theater and tv and, and film hitting your mark maybe i guess is kind of the most relatable thing yeah. you know i gotta i have to land here and be at this distance from the camera because that's where the director is telling me to but for 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 games and dubbing very specifically it's it's such a i i have found a lot of joy in in doing that and i and i kind of relish in making it my own um more than anything because i know that there's a great work that's been done from the origination, oftentimes the Japanese or whatever language that the content originated in, but to find your unique performance that is still true, like you're saying, like an understudy uh, that still has that you know very similar resemblance, is one of the most rewarding things when those things get praised. And I mean, universally, Xenoblade has been being praised like it's the performances is what th people keep talking about and. Um, I'm just so excited for that this is becoming a game where you're seeing all these DLC entries and I have to imagine you're excited to play the new one that's coming up. I know I am. And just even with that teaser, I mean, I won't get into this too much, but like <laughs> did that teaser just kind of like, it was so like, it was so short and like fragmented, but it also kind of just punched you in the face at the yeah. same time. It was like, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, it was like, hey, guess what, fucker? This is what you're about to get into. <laughs> you know what I mean? Is that kind of how yeah. you felt? You were like, wait, what? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, is the teaser itself something like 35 seconds yeah. long? Yeah! It's, it's, it, and yet there are, there are like 40 minute video essays <laughs> of people just being like, shit, have you? Yeah. Is that is that could they and i have i've i've been part of you know last kingdom you know was something where we have a great fan base for the last kingdom incredibly loyal um the the xenoblade the xenoblade um f fan response has been I, i've had great fan response i haven't always had like you know sometimes you have great fan response sometimes you have great critical response mm. we kind of had both and that is I'm glad I'm doing this now. I'm, you know, actually, funnily enough, something that I, another thing that I did that had great fan and critical response was Spring Awakening. And, you know, we had barriers at stage door and people telling us how amazing we were. And we also won, like, I think it won three Olivier's. Um, and, and we had all that kind of stuff. 
that I was kind of I was too sort of too young, too new to appreciate it. Mm. I was like, oh, that's great, but of course that's what I'll do forever. And now going, no, it isn't. That isn't <laughs> what I'll do forever. So this is a really amazing opportunity. I, I am, um, I am beyond delighted to be part of it, and I am tremendously. I always think humble is a terrible word because I don't think you can really be humbled by people telling you you're great and that the work is great. <laughs> um, if you do think that, you have a peculiar <laughs> understanding of humility, I think. I agree. Uh, I am incredibly glad for the response it's had. And I'm very grateful for the generosity of spirit with which, you know, whether it's just the response on social media or the fact that I Twitch stream myself playing the game and I have hundreds of people turn up and go... Um, don't worry, I also fell off that thing 15 times. <laughs> is has just been amazing. It's just been amazing. And I am so looking forward to the new DLC. I um I can't wait to play it and experience it. And it's just my my appetite to do more games is so ferocious mm. at the moment. Like I just I would just it's it's been a universally brilliant experience. There have been no downsides to this experience. It's been brilliant. I'm so happy for you, and I'm excited to see the more of the... I, I can't see a reason why everybody wouldn't want to be having it. Although the, the, this industry doesn't necessarily work in that way, which is kind of brilliant in itself. It's like I have to show up to every audition and kick ass, yeah. you know, and <laughs> show people why I'm, I'm meant for this role, and I have no doubt that you will be doing that. Seeing what you're capable of in Xenoblade is, is again, just impressed me on another level. And uh, it's it's really instilled this um, admiration I have for your work, and I just really can't wait to see whatever the next version of this is for you in the world of video games, uh, because I, I I I really cherish the work of actors who take video games seriously because it had such an effect I mean it's why I do what I do in the way that I do it because it was such a part of my life growing up even before games had voice acting, but then to see a whole like completely removed artistic community now bring brought into the storytelling part of games and saying we care about this too and we want to make sure that this story is told just as well as lord of the rings as mm -hmm. you know the wire would insert any acclaimed series or movie so when we when i see actors and artists that are brought onto these things specifically video games and like bearing their soul and killing it i just have such a respect and um admiration again for for people who do that so uh thank you and just so excited for this whole game and for, for anything more that they decide to give us with it i'm like i'm here for it um I've taken so much of your time. I would love to end on one thing that we ask all of our guests here, even though you've given us a plenty of experiences you've had in your life, but something we ask, and it doesn't have to be related to the industry. Um, it can be, but if it isn't, even better. Um, is there an experience you've had in your life, uh, again, not whether as an actor or performer or not, that kind of left an imprint on you, um, that changed you in a way, or you learned a lesson from that you think that people would really benefit from from uh, from hearing, you know, uh, I've talked about this one a hundred times on this podcast, but you know, even for me, it was like getting my first, being the first owner of, uh, my own animal changed me in profound ways and, and taught me so much about life and responsibility that I, I, I could, couldn't imagine my life without having animal companionship. Is there something 
similar, different, um, the first thing that comes to your mind, an experience that you had either being with someone or, or being told something or something happening to you that really just left an imprint on you that sharing this advice or this situation people would benefit from? Uh, yeah, I think I'll maybe trigger warning this slightly for depression or by trigger warning slightly, I mean fully trigger warning for depression in case anyone doesn't want to hear about that sort of thing. But um, I had a period of depression from sort of 28 all through sort of 2018, 2019. And I think I actually had it for a lot longer than I realized. Mm. Um, and what it really, uh, and I'm very well now, and I've been very well for a long time, um, but it was a, a, an extremely difficult thing to go through. And I think that what it gave me, and I kind of made the choice to consciously talk about it, not because I believe I can be at the forefront of removing stigma, because I think we're going that way anyway, but you know, you f people find comfort through their all, through their, in, with kind of mental health in all kinds of places. Um, although I would say, if you are, if anyone listening or watching is struggling with stuff, I'm not the person to come and talk to about it. The person to go and talk to about it are the people in your life that you love the most and medical professionals. Um, as much as I would like to help, I won't be able to. Um, but what I, what it gave me, among the many things it gave me and the many things I learned about myself, uh, is that... I was, I think what, part of what made me really unhappy was in my late twenties, I was holding myself to a version of life that I picked for myself at 17 or 18. Mm. And the idea of kind of self-flagellating, the idea that um, my career at 28 would have been seen as a failure uh, to my 17, 18 year old self. And the things that were important to me and the things I was doing uh, were not, what, not the high ideals I had for myself. And what I realized, without getting too into everything, what I realized was we think about ambition in creative industries in a very, very narrow way. We think about ambition being the pursuit exclusively of the personal, the kind of deification of our own idea of ourselves. Everything in my life as an actor, everything in my life as a human being had to be sacrificed on the altar of me as an actor. All the people I cared about, the relationships I formed, the way I spent my money, the way I spent my time, where I chose to live, how I chose to interact with the world. It all was in service of this idea of, of what I should be wanting. Mm. And what I realized was, and actually this, is, this was the catalyst for my move into, um, my move away from school and my move into voice work, was the things I'd wanted had changed. And that wasn't because I wasn't ambitious anymore. It was because my ambition was now directed in different places. Mm. I'm very fortunate that I'm, you know, married to someone I love very much. I'm, I cared more about that than I do about me. I, I have, I want to be a really great friend. I want to be a, a really great husband. I want to be a really great son and maybe one day if i'm fortunate enough i want to be a really great parent i want to be a really present father if i ever have children and that doesn't mean i'm less ambitious as a person it means the things that used to be really important to me are less important to me and an understanding that we don't stand still and that our aims when we're x age not being the same as our aims where we currently are is not an indication of failure, it's an indication of growth. Yeah. And if I'd recognize that that was growth and self-love quicker than I did, 
I might have had an easier time getting through it. And then uh, on a very, very um, surface level, I discovered Dungeons and Dragons. In that <laughs> and I now play Dungeons and Dragons once a week, once a fortnight, um, have done for um, five years. It is genuinely one of the great joys of my life. It's creative, it's collaborative, it's storytelling. It brings me into contact with people in my life who I really love and who I want to see more. Mm. And uh, if, and, and I think it is tremendous for people in our industry where often your creativity is, is shaped by other people to have a blank page and go, do what you want. Um, so yeah, without wishing to get too heavy, he said, having got heavy, those were the things that I really experienced. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. And, uh, that's so important right now. And especially for people in this industry where it is, it's, it, I, I don't, I, I hate to get like, it's very easy for people to say like, well, you're actors and you get to perform and you get to do all these things. Like, you know, how are you not happy? It's, it's a very real thing to experience this very weird dance of, being in a public figure to, to, for lack of a better way of putting it and having people uh, talking about you when you're not present and to have expectations of your career with people who you don't interact with daily and to speak with family and to have like, like, what am I going to see you on? Like all these expectations of being a performer and the way that it, that affects you. And especially from a young age, I mean, I've had people on here started out very young have talked similarly about it and uh, the way that that can affect you when you're you get into an industry and you find success from a very early age and i don't think there's a rule book on how to manage any of that so um i just i i, I commend you for where you are and and thank you for for sharing and talking about this stuff which i find very important right now especially for performers and uh therapy and, and counsel i i think has been some of the best things i've experienced in my life people have, have seen um great results with doing that as well so whatever you need to do and whoever you need to talk to uh thank you for expressing that and on the notes of dungeons and dragons similarly i found magic the gathering which i've been playing and oh, doing uh drafts of i'm trying to get in i'm, ma I'm meaning to get into magic oh the gathering. dude this is my this is the new thing that i'm trying that i want to i want to get into magic the gathering. let me know man i can't i i've been built I, I in my spare time i'm sitting here i've got cards littered throughout my my thing i'm making commander decks uh but similarly with uh, dungeons and dragons and what a great way for artists to be able to perform when they're not right this is all this this cupboard behind me that is literally all dungeons and dragons <laughs> and actually you can't see down maybe you can see down there uh yeah the beginning of that shelf you can see at the bottom <laughs> yeah is one two three four five six seven eight that's nine dungeons and dragons book my dm screen my character sheets my wife's character sheets and uh my journal as a dm and all my notes oh my god so fantastic it's it's the it's the best man escape escape while you can. i'm really happy for you and that you're finding these things that have been bringing you such joy in a way that you maybe at a younger age wouldn't have, have thought as much so it's it's it, i'm so happy for you and uh Thank i want to make sure i plug this i don't know have you have you done it yet? have you done your streamly signing yet i know that you it said somewhere that you were doing that i haven't Great. no um that is on the uh, the 7th of may at 6 p.m uk time i think i'm pretty sure it's that i can check um but yeah so i'm going to be doing that and actually the response to that has been really already really generous and lovely and full of excitement yes. so i'm really hoping that that can um that that's going to be something that that people enjoy uh let me find it yeah go yes, ahead it is 
Yeah, I was. Oh my gosh, I was right. There you go. Seventh Sunday, the seventh of May at six p.m. UK time. I'm going to be on Streamily for for the first time. Wow! So make sure everybody goes and checks that out. That link will be also in the description. Everything. Um, and follow you on social media. I know we talked about a little bit of that life, but if you want to know more information and updates on when similar things may or may not happen, um, I believe we will put those as well in the description, Harry. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute treat. I could sit here and talk to you for for hours upon hours about this stuff. Um, are you excited about the Last Kingdom movie? I believe that comes out pretty soon too. Of course, Seven Kings Must Die comes out in April, I think, or maybe May. I don't know. I'm not. I'm dead. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know that that's gonna yeah that's gonna be great. I I'm obviously still very close with a lot of that cast. They had an amazing time working on it. I think it's brilliant that. Um, that Netflix and Carnival, the production company that make it, have given the f- the the story the end it deserves, the fans what they what they were hoping for. I haven't seen it, um, but I'm very excited to see. Amazing, it. yeah, amazing, Harry. Everybody, thank you so much for coming on. It has been an absolute treat. Uh, more continued success for you in your life, your world, but especially in video games. I can't wait to see more of you pop up. Maybe we'll be in a similar title or a same title at one oh, day. That would be great. Um, that would be great. But really, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute blast. Thank you so much for having me, man. I loved it. Thank, thank you. you. Take care, buddy. I truly and honestly mean it when uh, that was everything I had hoped for and imagined. I was such a fan of The Last Kingdom during the pandemic. It really, uh, it's weird. Television, movies, and games, and all these things, they've been a, and as I'm sure for a lot of you, it's like the comfort when things get dark or hard. It's something you can rely on to be there and to give you enjoyment. And uh, The Last Kingdom was that for me. I found the show in uh, not to get because it wasn't to the degree of like it was a really bad time for me, but it was just, I was really struggling to find things in my life during the pandemic that I was like that were bringing me joy and I felt like everything that I loved and cared about was being taken away from me um, in more ways than one, literal and figuratively. And Last Kingdom was something Allie and I would sit down and watch and we were so excited about it. Um, And we were able to binge everything through because um, everything had been released at this time and I'm kind of glad we found it in the way, but we made it a ritualized thing. Like once or twice a week, we would sit down and watch The Last Kingdom and it really gave us something to look forward to. And I know that sounds cheesy and stupid, but um, it was. And... Harry's performance, again, was something that, as a performer for me, I really saw a lot of what I see in myself in that character. Not in in the evil things that he had done, but in the type of person and, and the type of performer that would book that role. I saw a lot of myself, you know, being an underdog in, in more ways than one, being someone who's... Um, I don't know. I just saw a lot of similarities between Harry and I and getting to talk with him was an absolute treat. Playing Xenoblade Chronicles and and all of that was just so inspiring as well. I really enjoyed that game. And if you guys haven't played it, I highly recommend you do so. Um, Or even just like watch the cutscenes as a movie. It's probably like 20 hours long, but it's so worth it. The story is so rich and uh, really relatable to the times that we're in. Harry is really, <clears throat> excuse me, he's really fantastic, really fantastic, um, and you'll get to see some sides of his performance that, um, without spoilers, uh, I think you'll really enjoy. I won't say more than that. And the DLC is coming out soon, so there's even that to look forward to. Also, I was a fan of him in, in episodes. That was a show that I watched 
at a period in time that I was a really big fan of. We didn't talk about it, but he did uh, um, to an extent. Uh, really another funny role to see him performing. So everyone check out his Streamly. We will link that in the description. Uh, make sure you guys like, follow, subscribe, all that great stuff so our videos can get seen by more people similar to you. As always, it's been a blast. Next week, we'll be having more for you. And I look forward to seeing you on the next one. Bye. Bye.